Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. What is love? Could go right. I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of the Progress Network, and I am here as always with Emma Varva Lucas, the executive director of the Progress Network. And we are having a series of conversations with stimulating people about stimulating, complicated, often unaddressed aspects of who we are, who we want to be, what we've been, and what we're heading to. And today we're gonna have a conversation with one of the more unusual and I find compelling voices in our public sphere, uh, Arthur Brooks, who has had multiple careers and worn a number of hats and is now a best-selling author as well as a professor at Harvard, both of which are interesting, but not nearly as interesting as the sheer elegance of how Arthur describes what's most essential in the human condition which we will get into with him. But as a, as a quick harbinger of things to come, one of the things that is most striking about our contemporary world isn't just the noise of negativity, which the Progress Network seeks to offset, not necessarily with an aura of positivity, but with a reminder of the complexity of the human experience and the degree to which we're all in the present responsible for creating a future that we want to live in and not the future that we fear we're heading toward. What's unusual is is the way in which so much of life has become siloed and segmented. So you can have a conversation about politics, you can have a conversation about personal development, you can have a conversation about religion, you can have a conversation about sports, you can have a conversation about international affairs, you can have a conversation about economics. But it's very difficult to have a conversation about all those things simultaneously and one's personal relationship simultaneously and yet we're all individuals having emotional reactions to all of those things and as we'll talk about it would be a very different and perhaps much more constructive world if we allowed the personal to intersect 
more frequently with all of those siloed categories. So Emma, tell us a little bit about Arthur and his most recent book as well. For sure. So as you mentioned, Zachary, Arthur is a professor at Harvard, and he has written 12 books. His most recent one that we're going to talk about today is called From Strength to Strength, and that came out in February 2022. He's the host of the podcast, How to Build a Happy Life, which is a really useful listen. And before all this, he served for 10 years as president of the Washington, D.C.-based American Enterprise Institute, which is one of the world's leading think tanks. So we're really excited to talk to Arthur and please welcome him with us. So Arthur Brooks, let's start where we will almost certainly not finish, which is with your new book, which for those of you doing this in a video context is nicely blown up behind your right shoulder from strength to strength. For those of you listening to the podcast, you'll just have to take my word for it that it's blown up over his right shoulder. So the, the, this book, like a lot of what you've you've written about over the years, has a component of you trying to answer questions for yourself and in so doing also answering questions, presumably for all of us, given that we all share more than we don't. So just tell us, give us the you know, the radio, the radio pitch for the book and what it's about. Sure. Absolutely. It's, um, it's a book about not leaving your happiness up to chance as you age. When I had this idea, I'm, I'm a social scientist. I teach happiness classes at Harvard university. And, and I realized that there's not very much about happiness as you get older. There's a lot about, you know, life hacks for young people, which is great. And I teach, you know, 27 year olds, 28 year olds at the Harvard business school, but there's, this assumption that as you get older, you just got to hope for the best, live right, and just sort of assume things are going to turn out okay for your happiness. And that can't be right. Like I've been in this business long enough to know that there's got to be a 401k plan for your happiness out there someplace. So I spent seven, and I, by the way, I did this for myself. This is not research. This is me search. And which it all is when you're a social scientist, especially specializing in happiness. And um, I spent seven years trying to find the practices that most reliably change the odds that you're going to get happier as you get older, as opposed to less happy as you get older. And I think, I think I actually found the answer. I think that I can pretty much, I can't guarantee, but I can remarkably raise the odds for anybody who reads the book or is listening to us here that they can be happier at 75 than they were at 25. If they do the things that are in this book that all of the happy older people have in common. I love hearing that because I've been telling people for most of my life that I'm 65 years old at heart. Uh, so I love to hear the fact that that's not just uh, you know breezy throwaway line that I can actually get happier as I get older. <laughs> but you know, if you're going to give the people listening some spoilers, they're yeah. like a top five we can give them um, for to make their happiness trajectory go up and not down. Yeah, for sure. Well, only do with, only but... do the top five and make sure that you say at the end that if you want to know six or ten, you'll have to buy. Them. Yeah, you're gonna have to buy the book. You know, that's the premium content. Right. <laughs> well, to begin with, there's the that one of the things that people who work hard and play by the rules and try to achieve a lot and they're successful, that they all think that's wrong is that you're going to be satisfied by, by achieving all your dreams, that your dreams, if your dreams come true professionally and for worldly terms, you can bank that and, and count on being happy when you get older. And that's completely wrong. It's not just false. It's the opposite of the truth. There's a really interesting data set. Um, actually, it's a ton of data by a bunch of researchers that looks how happy people get when they get older. And you find that generally speaking, 
adults, their happiness kind of drops a little bit over most of their young adult years. Not a lot, just a little, you know, you're having your kids and that sort of thing. And and then over early 50s, it turns around and almost everybody gets happier from 55 to about 70. It's good years for most people. But then people break up into two groups. Uh, they, there's half, about half the population keeps getting happier all the way to the end. And the other half starts getting unhappier from about mm. 70 or 65, 70 all the way to the end. So the key thing is like, what do the people on the upper branch have in common? And what can I do to stay off the lower branch? That's basically what it comes down to. And most people think that if they they have a lot of success in their life, worldly success, you know, they make a lot of money, they do what they want, they, they, their worldly dreams come true, then they'll be super happy. They'll be in the upper branch. And that's actually wrong. The strivers in life have this curse, actually, appropriately called the striver's curse, in which if you are you know, somebody who does a lot, you're going to know when it's over. Look, if you never do anything with your life, you're not going to know when the party's over because there was never a party. But if you make a big party with your life, when you actually inevitably have some declines, you're not going to like it. And you're going to be frustrated. And so that's the first big myth that we need to explode is that worldly success is not the key to late life satisfaction. On the contrary. So I wonder, though, what the nature nurture part is, right? I mean, there's a lot that you write about in this that is very much in the spirit of we all of us have a great deal of individual autonomy about how we relate to our lives, our present, our past, our future. The pushback against that would be there are clearly people for all of our lives who we encounter, including ourselves, who are wired a certain way. You know, that there there are people who are more predisposed to be aware of the downsides or to be Eeyore-ish. Sorry to disappoint you to take a, a, a Winnie the Pooh analogy. And then there are people who are much more likely to always look on the bright side of life, all due respect to Monty Python. And, you know, I think about this a lot, and we, we created the Progress Network partly as a way of saying we could all collectively be better served by being attuned to what is positive or to the work that people are doing to create a more positive future as attuned as we are to the negative in balance. Yeah. But but there are clearly individuals, right, who are somewhat constituted one way or the other. Yeah, so for sure. How does that affect what you're well, saying? Well, 50% of your happiness is genetic. And we know this from identical twins that are separated at birth and, and raised by different families. And then they get them back together as adults and give them personality tests. So between 40 and 80% of all of your personality is genetic, basically. And, and which is important, keep in mind, because and it's about somewhere between 44 and 52 percent of your baseline happiness is genetic. So I'm not going to say that that everybody can be perfectly happy at 75 because some people are like Eeyore, you know, and some people are just ebullient when they get happier. But everybody can be happier than they would have been otherwise. And that's a claim that I think is a responsible claim to make. You know, some people who really struggle with happiness or struggle with mood disorders, struggle with really high levels of negative affect they can improve. And, and it's interesting because you see a lot of people who are, they're, they're less neurotic as they get older. They're more open to new experiences as they get older. They have you know personalities that are friendlier as they get older because they're doing a lot of this stuff right. They're getting their happiness hygiene on point. And that's what this book is all about. This book is not about perfect happiness. This is a book about getting happier than we would have been otherwise and getting happier as the years go by. And those are claims that we, we can really, really make no matter where you start out. I think a lot of people think of happiness as 
a state of being where there is less pain and less conflict and more pleasure and more feeling of connectedness and that you are who you want to be and that your life is as you wished it to be. So where, though, is the, the role of constructive struggle in that or of, as it were, you know, pain as part of the gain uh, yeah. and not simply a state of being that you define as happy, which means one of the absence of pain or the absence of conflict or the absence of challenge? Yeah, well, that's so you're, you're defining Epicureanism from the Greek philosopher Epicurus, who who defined happiness as a series of pleasant feelings characterized by peace and tranquility and friendship, et cetera. And we also think of that, that's where the guy idea of hedonia comes from. You know, it's hedonic with respect to good feelings. It's hedonism comes from that. Although the ancient idea of hedonism was not unbridled immoral activity. On the contrary, uh, Epicurus was deeply, deeply moral and deeply upright, but he, be- he believed that and he had a cult actually around him. And, but they were very peaceful and they were very friendly. And the whole idea was good feelings. There's lots of good feelings, lots of stuff to read, lots of stuff to eat and good feelings all around. Today, we would think of that as kind of psychological hedonism. And a lot of people kind of go according to this theory that, that the, the philosophy of the best life is to get rid of the bad stuff. It's just, you know, back in the 60s, they'd say, if it feels good, do it. Well, psychological hedonism today, especially among millennials, is more like if it feels bad, get rid of it. If it feels bad, treat it. You know, no matter what it is, it bad, if you go to the campus counseling center where I teach at Harvard University and you say, I'm feeling really, really rotten, they're going to treat you. They're not going to say, well, guess what? A full life has suffering. They're not going to say that to you. But that's true. It turns out the, the problem is that there's liability involved and you don't know who actually has a mood disorder. And so you can't send people away saying, you know, you're living a full life, you know, <laughs> get in touch with your suffering. But, you know, the truth is we all kind of do have to do that in some cosmic sense. So the way to think about this for everybody is that happiness has three elements. It has three macronutrients to it. Sort of like food is made up of protein, carbohydrates, and fat. Happiness is made up of enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose. And purpose requires suffering. It just does. You know, when I ask people, when did you find your true self? You know, when were you aware of the meaning of your life? They never say it's like that week in Ibiza. That's not what they say. You know, they talk about, you know, my mom got sick or, you know, the family business went broke or I got kicked out of school. You know, they always talk about hard things and maybe there were some pleasant things thrown in there, but it's always hard things. And the reason for that is because pain and suffering and your reaction to them, this is what makes you grow. This is what gives defines your purpose. Purpose is a macronutrient of happiness. And so paradoxically, if you go through life trying to avoid unhappiness, what you wind up doing is avoiding a lot of your own happiness. And so you got to, you have to like, life is a big experience. You know, most people, they don't even want to be happy all the time. Most nor- or normal people, they want to feel the appropriate feelings to life. That's why people listen to sad music. Sad music brings you down, man. I got data showing that it will, it will literally stimulate the parts of your brain, the anterior cingulate of the brain, which is responsible for you feeling physical pain. You listen to sad music, it stimulates the same part of the brain. People do it on purpose because they want to feel something. And feeling something is part of being alive. That's part of purpose. And that's actually part of happiness in the the proper understanding of eudaimonia, a good life, a full life, well lived. So yeah, we shouldn't be in the absence of suffering. That's not life at all. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. 
That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Denmark apparently is the happiest country. Is that true? In your research, because you, Mike, you are the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen. That's right. I mean, what does that involve? Does that involve just rocking up to work and being happy? (laughs) This is great. No, it involves going around the world and finding out what drives happiness, whether we're from the UK or Denmark or China or the US, understanding the mechanics of happiness and trying to find ways that people can become happier. That's my job. Well, you seem very happy. Well, lykke is the, the Danish word for happiness. Yeah. Well, I mean, hygge and happiness, I think, um, one of the best predictors of whether people are happy or not yeah. is their relationships. And it's that sense of togetherness, it's that sense of belonging, that sense of community we can see impacts people's happiness. Yeah, Arthur, it's interesting what you say about millennials in particular wanting to you know, avoid the bad stuff or get rid of the bad stuff. Cause it certainly seems like we're having, at least in my age group, the sort of like collective thing about acknowledging trauma and that like, we're all like weighed down and bogged down by trauma, but on this sort of social level of conversation, there's not a whole lot about what you mentioned in the book and are talking about now, which is that trauma and loss are not always harmful. Like it's an enormous opportunity to create meaning in your life. And I'm wondering about the loss of like that social conversation of transmuting the trauma and loss into meaning. Like, why has that seemed to have not, you know, why, why has it been lost from society? It seems like. Well, part of it is that society tells us that a good life is one in which you feel good all the time. The second thing is that we've got kind of a, the victim Olympics going on um, all, all the time which is to say, you know, when there is suffering and trauma, there's two ways to look at it. One is this is happening to me. Somebody's doing this to me. And the other way to say is I am experiencing this. And those are two different ways of actually looking at suffering, looking at pain. And to say I am experiencing this makes it part of a full life. It doesn't mean you want to you don't want to eradicate it. Of course, you want relief and you will do what it takes to get relief, but you'll experience the suffering while you're on the path to relief. That's entirely different than getting no meaning from it because you're 
in the in the mentality that of grievance and victimhood. And and again, we might there are legitimate grievances in the world. Don't get me wrong. And people are victims to be sure. But if we're in the kind of a culture of saying, you know, I'm looking for the ways that things aren't working out for me, and I'm looking for the perpetrators of those things, and I'm going to concentrate on the grievance per se. You're not going to find personal meaning and personal growth in those things. On the contrary, a lot of our our politics today on both right and left are based on grievance. They're based on identitarian grievance. And as such, it's kind of a source that victimhood is permanent and, and a source of power. And that's not going to give you meaning. That's certainly not going to bring you the macronutrient of happiness. You know, we talked about this a bit, Emma, with uh, Jonathan Haidt in the first season, who's another yeah. member of the Progress Network. Yeah, he's, one, he's an old colleague and, and collaborator of mine. He's fantastic. And, and talked a lot about the you know the the challenge of suffering, right? Is is not to then descend into victimhood. It's to have that experience, and I guess to some degree to own it. I know that's a bit of a, a cultural cliche. You know, the idea of own your experience, but but the value in that is sort of back to the the, the mantra of your current book is uh, you, you are then living your own experience, right? You're not living someone else's experience of you or someone else's diktat of your life. But I think that is a very challenging one, right? To to embrace um, what you've just said, you know, that sometimes life, particularly when there is an endeavor that it has meaning, can be immensely challenging and immensely difficult. And that doesn't really scan from our traditional notions of happiness, which you've articulated so beautifully, are, I think, largely at this point, filtered through more of the hedonism and the you know, the lens of zero pain. And I, like, yeah. I, I've, I've felt like happiness is a, is, is a challenge for Americans because it becomes a set point that assumes uh, the absence of difficulty. And therefore it's either always a willow wisp, meaning it's a never achievable state of being right. Except on, I guess a lot of sedatives and even then not really. Not really. No, you're not experiencing your life at that point. Right. Yeah. You know, then you're just, you're just numb but what, what do you think? I mean, because there's there's a cultural thing too, right? You talked about some of it's genetic. There's also cultures that are more like happiness cultures, and there are cultures where it's just not it's not seen as appropriate to speak of happiness, right? And Americans clearly have an expectation of it, where other cultures don't. How does that, in your mind? shape some of these questions? Well, I've, I've written about that a lot. And there are cultural differences in how you talk about happiness, how you define the word happiness, and how you actually experience happiness in different places around the world. Collectivist cultures different do it in different ways than individualist cultures, for example. In, in parts of East Asia, a lot of happiness is defined as tranquility. It's defined as you know social peace, for example, is how you would think about it. Um, and so there are those particular differences, but as a general rule, um, it you know it's for those indices of you know world happiness. The United Nations shamelessly plugs this index of happiness, where every year they talk about the happiest countries, and it's nothing more than a pretext to say that Northern European social democracies have got it right, and all the rest <laughs> of us need to fall in line, you know. And it's like. It's like everybody's got to be Denmark. I mean, that's what the United Nations really wants is for us all to be Denmark. And then, so they say, and see, they hold out the carrot of happiness. But the truth is, we define happiness very different than the Danes. I'm not going to cast aspersions. Denmark's awesome, but I don't want to live in Denmark. My great-grandparents were, were immigrants from Denmark for a reason. 
you know, they were just, you know, they were ambitious riffraff that didn't want to have a Danish lifestyle. They wanted to start a farm in South Dakota and see if they could, you know, make it on their own. Different strokes, right? And different countries actually have different sets of ambitions. The really interesting thing for me is how we as people are all the same. And we're way more the same than we are different, way more the same. I mean, this is one of the key things in an idea and an identitarian kind of polarized world where everybody's looking at these big differences, my tribe, your tribe, my opinions, your opinions, my this, my that, this group, that group. Ugh, it's so boring because the, the things that we have in common are so vast and so important. And so the, the really interesting things, okay, so half your happiness is genetic. Another half of that last half, in other words, a quarter is circumstantial. And we're all open to the same set of circumstances. And everybody thinks that if their circumstances in life are right, they're going to be permanently happier. And that's wrong. That gets to this first mistake that people make. If I make a bunch of money and I have a successful company, or if my kids do really, really well, whatever it is, then I can bank it. I'll be happy for the rest of my life. Circumstances never last. You're on a treadmill. You can't, as Mick Jagger saying, you can't get no satisfaction. Actually, you can't keep no satisfaction. You can get it, but you can't keep it. And so what you really need, what we all need is to have the right happiness hygiene, the right habits of happiness. And, and those are the kinds of things that we all need to do at any age to be as happy as we can be and the right things we need, need to do to bank to get happier as we get older. And those are the two things I teach about and that I write about. Yeah. So Arthur, that's what I was just about to ask, which is, which is really a me search question, because of course your book is, a, is primarily for people who are, I guess, in the latter half of their of their life actually for um, you because you know the earlier you start on your 401k the, the more it grows and the better it is when you retire so yeah, this is no, a book for is, you know okay. 25 45 65 any age really so that we can get happier as we age for sure this is de- this is exactly what i was going to ask because a lot of the book as you mentioned before is about like your career goals are not going to bring you lasting happiness and i remember very clearly reading something about David Brooks, who was sort of like, if I were to fashion a dream career, it'd be something like David Brooks. And he, it was like one of his books hit the bestseller list and he felt nothing. And I was like, that freaked me out. Like it really honestly freaked me out. This conversation we're having calls to mind an interview with Tom Brady. You might've seen it. It went pretty viral. It was on 60 Minutes in 2005. And he talked about how he struggles with the reality that achievement does not always equal happiness. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings? And, and still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is, me, I thank God. It's gotta be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it, I'm 27. And what else is there for me? You made me wonder reading your book, like, is it we should be striving and setting up our life and doing the career things and all this and all that into a certain age when we start to decline? Or is it what you're saying now, which is like, we're doing that, but we're also setting us, ourselves up for happiness, success. And are the two things, uh, you know, mutually exclusive? Like, how does that all work if you're on the, the younger side? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, David David Brooks and I are old friends. We're actually not related, even though we say, we share a surname. And, and he did tell me that. And I remember, you know, David says like, yeah, I got number one in the New York Times bestseller list and I felt nothing. I'm like, let me see for myself, David. Let me see for myself. And it's mm-hmm. interesting because last week, it, this book was number one in the New York Times bestseller list. How did and you feel? And I thought to myself, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's like, 
I got to say, it was actually, I didn't feel nothing. It was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. And, but I was mostly happy for, you know, the people who made it so, you know, my editor and, you know, and the people who, you know, pushed the book tour and the media. These are the people who worked super hard. My, I'm just the guy with, who wrote the book and his name is on it, but it's a team effort. And you're so happy for the people you love who are behind it. And that kind of points out the real truth of this, which is that happiness from achievements comes because of the shared success with people you love. Happiness from achievements doesn't come because your dream came true in that particular moment. You could bank, I'm a number one New York Times bestseller forever. No, I'm for a week. That's and and you know, it's it's intense satisfaction for an hour, and then a glow for a day, and then the credential for a week, and then then you're just another loser. So, you know, that's so if you're going to bank, you're trying to bank those things, you're going to be hopelessly frustrated. On the other hand, if you're going to say, this is awesome, look what we did. And this is an, an opportunity for us to come together and love each other and, and compliment each other and say, yay team, that's real satisfaction. And that's, and that's what you put in the bank and your 401k of happiness is, is uh, improving relationships on the basis of mutual admiration. And that's one of the things I write about in the book, as a matter of fact. Well, I mean, there is the sort of the mid ground between those. It made no difference and it made every difference. There's a, I guess, a Buddhist saying, I don't know which tradition of you know, how do you attain enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. You know, what do you do when you attain enlightenment, you chop wood and carry water. And, and it's the idea of, you know, I've thought about this a lot also, having written a lot. You had better enjoy the process of writing a book because the process of publishing a book and and promoting a book is about a nanosecond right. relative to the process of of writing it, thinking about it, cogitating it, the effort in it. Um, yeah, you know, there, there's a lot more behind the scenes than in front of the scenes, for sure. And, and that's life. You know, there's an old right. joke. There's an old existentialist joke. What's first place in a pie eating contest? <laughs> it's pie. So I hope you <laughs> like pie. Right. Because if you don't like pie, don't enter a pie eating contest. And all we're just in a bunch of pie eating contests. I mean, I have these MBA students at Harvard and, and I'm like, I hope you like pie because you're studying pie, you're accumulating pie. And all you're going to get in, in, as, a, as a result of this, your reward is a lot of pie for the rest of your life. And, and so this is the key thing. You better like writing books because you're, you're, if, you're really, if your book is really successful, which it usually isn't. I hope you got a lot of inherent satisfaction no matter what. And if it's really successful, it means you're going to get to write a whole bunch more books. So, you know, time for pie. <laughs> I think we should name this episode that time for pie. Are there, you know, since you were pointing out, okay, big thing to, to put into your happiness 401k, which I really like as a metaphor is loving relationships. And yeah. of course, there's a lot of talk these days about the loneliness epidemic and how we're lonelier than than ever before. There's some pushback about that. Some people say, actually, it's it's not true. Wondering where you stand on that. Are we lonelier than ever before? Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. It's a, it's a huge problem. And there's a, a couple of different ways that we look at it. You know, the number of people that we report uh, know us well, uh, that has been declining for a long time. The number of people that we would consider to be close friends, that's been declining for a long time. And then just the markers of loneliness with respect to depressive symptoms has been increasing for a long time. And then the, the, the real question is, you know, what's going on? Part of it is that 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 romantic love is, is in just wholesale decline all the way across the West. And I don't know about the data outside the West because I haven't seen it and, and maybe it doesn't even exist. But in the United States, for example, uh, romantic love for people in their 20s today is down by about a third. And, you know, that's catastrophic. 
And part of the reason for that is that, you know, people talk about the passion for romantic love, the dopamine. I mean, you look at the brain of somebody who's recently fallen in love and it looks like a methamphetamine addict's brain. I mean, it's just, it's just oxygenating the ventral striatum of the brain, just like, and it's, it's unbelievable. But you know, what happens, the reason that brings ultimate happiness, because falling in love is exciting, but it doesn't bring happiness. It brings jealousy and surveillance behaviors and all kinds of things that are not associated with happiness typically. But if, in a healthy relationship, it you, you you also get this other neuropeptide that functions as a hormone called called oxytocin, and oxytocin is the warmth that comes from human love. The the best relationships they go from passionate to companionate, and the basis of that is very 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 close friendship. So the 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 fact that 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 romantic love is in decline means that we'd have less friendship and we have more loneliness. The second thing is that we're subs that we get this junk food epidemic called social media. The junk food of social life is social media because you can't get any oxytocin from social media. And we're, we're craving this, this neuropeptide in our brains. Our brains are screaming out. It's, it's physically uncomfortable. So during the coronavirus epidemic, during the lockdowns, people who are either isolated completely or just living with somebody or even living with family, but hadn't really improved their relationships with family or becoming, you know, this was like the, the divorce lawyers full employment act of 2020. You know, it was just ruining relationships, actually, that they found that they were almost they were restless. They couldn't sleep. And, and a lot of this had to do with this oxytocin scarcity that was going through their brains. And, and people would turn to binging social media as a result of that and actually get lonelier. It's like I'm hungry. So I'm going to eat Big Macs and fries and chocolate shakes all day long. And you're going to over consume calories and under consume nutrients. And it's a, it's a direct metaphor for what's actually been going on. So you have a lot of fear from young people of rejection. You have a culture that says that men and women should be afraid of each other or should resent each other for all sorts of reasons. Um, and then you have a social media uh, uh, culture in which people are substituting this, these this sort of these uh, virtual relationships for real relationships. And all that adds up to is a real oxytocin deficit in our society. And that's manifest in loneliness. And I look coming out of the coronavirus epidemic, ordinarily you'd have nine, nine, nine and a half percent of the population have depressive symptoms. Symptoms of clinical depression is 28% right now. And uh, most of that's because of loneliness. I can't help think as you're saying this about the decline of romantic love and, and the junk food eating is just the immense popularity of shows like Love is Blind, just basically like romantic love, like junk food on steroids. Yeah, it's also, and, it's nutty. It's crazy. I mean, all of the stuff that we see, not only are we, are, is it super torqued because of our culture and you know the way that we've told people that they should resent and, and be afraid of each other, um, it's also uh, torqued in a big way in our popular culture by these myths of things like destiny and soulmates. And these things are completely wrong. Love at first sight does not exist. I mean, there's a ton of research on this. It's sort of these romantic ideas that, that actually what they wind up doing is destroying romance. People who believe in soulmates are more likely to blow up their relationships. They're more likely to ghost their partners when things aren't going right. They're less likely to display forgiveness. They can't, they don't even have the hygiene to develop a good romantic relationship. So our cultures, it's a double whammy. You know, we're taking away the oxytocin and we're replacing it with this, these like some sort of noxious, but colorless and odorless gas that we get that, you know, like in things like love is blind. But isn't there the question then of expectations? You, you, you talked about that before about happiness and what we think of, of happiness. Um, these are very sort of short duration data sets, meaning our awareness of, of, of a delta, of a change from depressiveness to happiness or contentment to discontentment 
is really of the past 50 years, maybe 60, but it's not like these questions have been asked for time immemorial so that we can have a control group of uh, Burgundian peasants in 1512 versus Cambridge in 2022. And that'd be grim. Yeah. I don't want to. Yeah. Right. So, but I'm, I wonder therefore if we're, we're kind of, we're making a, we're extrapolating a lot based on a, a moment in time where a series of expectations about what is possible for human life yeah. are probably at an apex based mm-hmm. on the 20th century. You know, that, and I mean, look, you can disagree with me on this. It, it, it just seems to me that the belief that a human life can be safe, healthy, long, happy, full of friends, connectivity, romantic love, self-actualization, a job you want, a house you've created where more is possible rather than less, like all of that suite of expectations, which is a product of 19th century progress and 20th century somewhat material success and innovation would be pretty alien to a lot of human beings. Yeah, for add in 21st century atheism and you've got the whole, you got the full Monty. So how much of happiness or rather how much of discontent is the mismatch between unrealistic expectations? You talked about it before, you know, the idea that, that there should be no struggle being just one of many, right. as opposed to an actual uh, step backwards from some point of genuine contentment. It's not clear that we don't, there, there, are two, there are a lot of schools of thought on this. You know, there is kind of a sentimentalist school of thought that there was some halcyon period in which real commit, contentment was happening. But I, I, I tend to not believe that only because if I look at what people were writing, um, going back to Plato, Plato was talking about kids these days. They don't know how easy they've got it. You know, and then in Jesus Christ is will be unto this, you know, uh, the, this, you know, generation. And then you go, I mean, every 20 years, everybody thinks that the last three generations were worthless, except for the greatest generation. Like, you know, right. That one world war two, by the way, they were named the greatest generation by the greatest generation. So take it for what it's worth. And, and you know, no matter what, we're always doing that. You know, that's like the, the, the boomers can't stand the millennials and the millennials think the Gen Z's or Gen Z's are a bunch of slackers and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. I think there's really kind of nothing new under the sun, but the problem is that all of the progress that we're offered has sped up in a very big way, but it's been in the hands of people that don't understand the dynamics of actual human happiness. What we've done over the past 30 years is we've handed the keys to our society and a great deal of our money and our time and our energy over to engineers and bureaucrats. You know, people who basically have the same worldview, which is that we can engineer a better world where you'll be happier and have more love. You know, this is the, the and, and we say, okay, okay, good, fantastic. Go, go do that, right? Give me the apps, give me the social media, give me the dating apps, give me the, the cradle to grave welfare state, give me the whole thing so that I won't be lonely and I'll have what I need and I'll be completely contented and I'll be well. It's basically kind of, it's sort of, uh, you know, blue pill engineering, you know, and, and that's, and that's, and, and then guess what? It doesn't actually give us what we want because it can't. You know, bureaucrats, and I don't say cast aspersions. I like living in a welfare state. Don't get me wrong. You know, I want, you know, I want people that I don't, I love my taxes going to help people that need help. I love that. I think it's a, it's a literally the greatest achievement of the capitalist system is that, you know, but, but it's not going to bring people love and people need love. People need faith. They need family. They need real friendship, not deal friendship, by the way. And they need work in which they can serve other people and feel like they're earning their success. These are the 
These are the habits, this is the portfolio of habits of happy people. And last I checked, Facebook can't do that. Microsoft, Amazon, Apple uh, can't do that. Google can't do that. The state of California can't do that. The, te- the, the, the education system can't do that. They're not built to do that, but we're looking to them and handing over all of our cash and then wondering why we're still bummed out. Well, that's why. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) We we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. those connections and friendships and and love in our life when we, like you said, seem to have handed over the keys. For instance, if you happen to be a millennial woman looking for love in a time where romantic love has declined, asking, asking for a friend, for a friend right? <laughs> yes, I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, like how, do, how does one swim against that tide then in an individual way? Yeah. Well, part of it is that you need to swim against the tide. You need to rebel. You need to basically say, I'm not, I'm not going to play. I'm just not going to play. I'm not going to do that. You know what I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed to be afraid of this and I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed to buy this and I'm supposed to avoid that. Well, the, the, you're being told lies. You need the right formula. The world has given you a formula, Emma, and the world's formula sounds almost right. And here's the world's formula. Love things, use people, and worship yourself. <laughs> that's what the world's telling you to do. You know, that's, it's, it's like six easy words, man. It's like, what are people for to use, to use for your pleasure, to use for your career, to use for your opportunities, to use, 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 use. That's what people are there. People are instrumental. 
what are you going to do? You're going to love stuff. Are you kidding me? You want to be happy? Get that car. You know, that car is awesome. Get that car. Super great. Go on that vacation, sit on that beach, you know, buy those clothes and, and, and worship yourself because who else are you going to worship? You know, this is the, the social media is the church of me. That's really what the social media is all about. Social media is this like, you know, temple to myself, basically. Well, the thing is that sounds right because it's so close to correct, but it's not. It's actually, so St. Thomas Aquinas in, you know, 1275, 1265, when he wrote the Summa Theologica, he called these things the idols that, that attract people. They're incredibly magnetic. They don't give us what we want, but they're close enough that they'll draw us in. They're like a, a rubber worm that a bass is going to get, is going to eat because it looks like a real worm, but got a hook, right? So, so here's the real formula. Remember, the, the counterfeit formula is love things, use people, worship yourself. The right formula is use things, love people, and worship the divine. That's the right formula. Now, you got to figure out what that means. But that's the adventure. That's why it's so awesome that if you're basically following that going, it's like, so you know, Emma's plan of life is, okay, I'm going to love people today. I don't care if it's embarrassing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell three people I love you today. I'm going to tell my friends. I'm going to tell my mom. And sometimes it's going to be safe and sometimes it's going to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dangerous life. I'm going to use things with abundance. Look, I'm a capitalist. I want to use things with abundance, right? I don't want to abuse things and throw things away and ruin the earth, but come on. Stuff is for using, but it's not going to bring me happiness because I'm just going to use it. That's all. That's what it's all about. And I'm going to be on the spiritual path. I'm going to be looking for what that means to worship the divine. I don't know what that means. Now, I know what that means for me. And a lot of people think that they know what it means for them, but the, the, the path itself is like, it's like, like being Lewis and Clark trying to find the Pacific is the most exciting thing ever. If these are the three objectives, if you go from the wrong formula to the right formula, then it's a, it's a crazy world. I mean, this is a dangerous world. This is an adventurous world. This is like, you don't know what you can expect. It's not going to be ordinary. It's not going to be boring. And you might just find your bliss. So can we go for a moment to shift gears from the personal to the political, not about politics, just the political, and a little bit about Arthur Brooks, who we'll talk about in the third person for one moment, has had- yeah, an, That guy, an, yeah, the that old guy. 57-year-old guy, yeah. But you've had a kind of extraordinary, unusual career in that for a period of time, you were the head of the American Enterprise Institute, which for most uh, you know coastal liberal viewers is perceived as a- at best right-leaning and at, at worst very much to the right intellectual organization. Evil, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And yet you have managed to thread a very unusual needle in that your voice, your sentiments, your your writings, your intellect has been both lauded and acceptable by many people on the right and and clearly by many people in the center and many people on the left in a way that is increasingly unusual in contemporary society. I assume, given your acumen and self-awareness, you've thought about this and thought about the uniqueness of your own placement in the firmament. So how do you explain how Arthur Brooks has been able to navigate what so few people have? And like, what are the constructive lessons of that? Or or is it just a sui generis luck of the draw? <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, that. I mean, that's, I don't give it too much thought, actually, and I appreciate your really kind words. It actually gets weirder than that. I mean, I don't know if you know, but I started off my career as a classical French horn player. 
So I didn't go to college until I was 30. I spent, you know, from 19 to 31 playing cl- playing classical music, chamber music. And I was in the Barcelona Symphony in Spain for a bunch of well, years. Well, that explains everything. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, but the whole but the whole point is I have this theory and I don't know if it's right, but my theory is you get to invent your life, that your life is your startup. Your life is your enterprise. Don't screw it up by just wasting it. I mean, and you screw it up by screwing it up is the whole point by, you know, get, take a shot. And, and, you know, and when you want to do something else, spiral around, take your career down to the studs, take your work and your life down to the studs every 10 years and start again, if you want to do something different, because, you know, you get a certain number of years and you got to have an adventure and you got to love other people and you got to lift people up and you have to find the best way to do that. And so, you know, I have certain beliefs. I really, I love the American Enterprise Institute because it's dedicated to alleviating poverty and, and the, the strict equality of human dignity and using market forces to do that is the whole point, you know, and it, and not everybody agrees, but that's cool. You know, that's cool because, you know, maybe I'm not right. Maybe I'm wrong. And so I'm always looking, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, where, who's got a good argument, right? <laughs> and so I'm not a dogmatist on it. I'm not pugilistic about my ideology. I change my views constantly. I try to have enough epistemic humility to do it. And all of that is based on the fundamental proposition that I believe that everybody is fundamentally equal. And I believe everybody is a child of God. And I believe that we all have the same kind of dignity and my job is to love everybody and lift them up as much as I possibly can. And sometimes it's controversial and sometimes it's not. But I think if you come at the adventure of life from the point of view that that's saying, I love you, this, these are my values. I offer them as a gift, never as a weapon. It usually turns out okay. Arthur, since you talked a little bit personally just now from a professional point of view, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit personally about yourself from a religious point of view. Um, yeah. It's definitely something that's in the book, but it's interesting because in the book, you even say like, I debated putting in this chapter because pe- so many people are allergic to religion nowadays. Yeah. So I was just wondering if you could talk about your journey with that a little bit. Like, is that something you grew up with or is this a newfound thing and what traditions do you follow and all of that? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a Catholic, but it's been a, it's been a funny road. I grew up in a Christian home in Seattle, Washington. And, um, my parents weren't super religious, but we, you know, we, we, we attended religious services and we were, we consider ourselves Christians. And I had kind of a mystical experience when I was a teenager and, and became Catholic and, and probably it was adolescent rebellion, but my parents were like, ah, it's probably better than drugs. So I guess, you know, cool. We'll, we'll let that, we'll let this one slide. And, and, um, and then I met and married my wife. Actually, I moved to Barcelona because I fell in love with a girl who didn't speak English and I didn't speak any Spanish. The reason I went to the Barcelona Symphony was actually in pursuit of this girl, uh, this hopeless romance. I mean, it was just the, it was completely crazy. And uh, we just celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary. We have three grown kids. And so, and our communication has marginally improved over the period. <laughs> but, you know, but the key thing is that um, we followed a spiritual path together over three decades. And this is one of the most critical things that everybody needs to understand that there's a, a, a concept called metacognition. And metacognition is, is, is going through life in a way where you're aware of your urges, tendencies, and feelings so that you can manage them. And there's a lot of neuroscience behind it. I mean, it's like tendencies and urges and feelings, uh, they originate in the limbic system of the brain. And when you understand them, and when you think about them, they go to the prefrontal cortex where you can actually manage them. The most powerful thing that you can do when it comes to trying to understand the mysteries of the universe is joint metacognition, 
where you are with somebody that you love and trust. And together, you can navigate these incredible mysteries. And that's what we've been doing. We've been jointly metacognitive on the spiritual path. For And I realize I'm sounding like some you know new age crazy person when I say that, but this is actually based, believe it or not, it's based more in science than it is in, in, in new age ideology. And we've been looking for the, the, the spiritual way together. And she's, I mean, I, I dedicate this new book to my guru and that's my wife. You know, I, I was in Southern India studying with a, a great, uh, uh, you know, Vedic master, uh, one of the, the disciples of Sri Ramana Maharshi, one of the great Hindu masters of the past hundred years. And it's one of his disciples named Nochur Venkataraman. He's a, a Tamil guy. And uh, he's asking me about the spiritual path. The same question you just asked me, Emma. And I said, my wife, I mean, she leads me on paths of righteousness. We, she, we, we pray, we, we, we meditate the rosary, the holy Catholic prayer of meditation every night together. I mean, and we learn, we read, we were, <laughs> and, and she teaches me, she leads me by the hand. And he said, she's your guru. <laughs> she's your guru, which in, in, in for, for, for Hindus, it's a really big deal, right? It's a really big deal. And so that's really the essence of it. You know, the, the Catholic faith for me is the way for me to find the verities of life and to explore the beauty that is the adventure of life that, you know, it's, it's ultimately what the meaning of what I'm trying to do is to lift other people up and bring them together in the same spirit as, as, as my, as my Lord and savior. And uh, not everybody agrees with me on that either. And at the end of my life, at, maybe at some point, I'll find out if I was right. It's just a basic fact about being human that sometimes the self seems to just melt away. And when that happens, the feeling is ecstatic. And we reach for metaphors of up and down to explain these feelings. We talk about being uplifted or elevated. I mean, it's unusual. You're an unusual soul to be able to express both your personal journey and then iterate it through multiple lenses of, of, of politics, of people's political behavior, of people's personal behavior, from young to old. And, you know, I do, I, I, I do want to acknowledge that because, you know, it's not as if uh, the world is littered with people who navigate sort of the, the personal, their own inner life and their awareness of everyone else's outer life with such fluidity. Uh, I don't know that that's an easy path to emulate, uh, even though you lay out a way in which everybody can presumably become more of whoever they're supposed to be at whatever point in time they're supposed to be that. But it does require, um, it requires a comfort that you have uh, with words like love juxtaposed to realms that usually have done their best to elide human emotion, right? You don't hear a lot of talk of love on Capitol Hill. Um, and you don't hear a lot of talk of what is the purpose of us all being here in, in worlds of money and politics. In times past, leaders did talk about love. Yep. George Washington talked about love. Abraham Lincoln talked about love. The Gettysburg Address was about love. I mean, it, it's it, it's incredible to me that we've got this desiccated understanding of what politics and public life is supposed to be about. If it's not about love, it's not about anything. What is it about money? How boring is it about, I mean, power? It just couldn't be more boring than power. Power is the most boring thing ever, right? And 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 yet we talk as if love were something in the private realm. No, love is the most public thing ever. 
It animates us. It fires our soul. It's the, it's the nuclear fuel rods of our happiness. And as such, it should be at this very center of how we see ourselves and how we govern ourselves, how we share our, our values with other people. It doesn't rule out even conflict. On the contrary, it should motivate the right kind of conflict. And yet somehow <laughs> we're this husk of a culture in which the things that I said just now are weird. I mean, it's just, that's weird, actually, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder at what time love became embarrassing like that. Like, when did that change? Yeah, it's well, you know, the idea of private love, um, it's, you know, there's this old joke that uh, there's a man in Minnesota who loved his wife so much that he almost told her, you know, that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and so there's this kind of uh, the American stoic, uh, the, you know, the American Gothic Grant Woods famous painting of the, you know, the, the farmer in Iowa with his wife, you know, grim looking, holding a, a pitchfork. And so the private sentimental idea of love probably would not have been expressed, you know, a hundred years ago, you would have talked about love for nation and love for humanity. Um, but, but you know, that that's kind of culturally contextual too. I mean, if you, if you go back and look at how, you know, the, the commandment, it's, it's, it's interesting. You're going to talk about love, for example, just from a, from a more of a mystical perspective, a Pharisee asks Jesus, you know, the 10 commandments, it's a lot to remember, Lord. I mean, it's like tens a lot. So boil it down for me. And Jesus is like, okay, easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. That's one. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Now that has everything in the world packed into it because if you want to love God where God is omnipotent and doesn't need anything, including your love, the only way that you can do that is by actually loving people who are made in his image. So it makes kind of perfect sense. That's why it's an adjunct. Okay. So 300 years later, St. Augustine is asked, even that too is too much. Boil it down. St. <laughs> Augustine said, love and do what you will. Love and do what you will. That does not rule out the sentimentality of love between friends, of love between lovers. I mean, it's all love is the most important thing because and that's, the, that's the punchline of the great Vedic traditions of love, of the Hindu traditions of love, that the whole concept of love of the divine means that, that God is pulsating love, that our souls are a little chip of that love destined to be manifest in ourselves in terms of love. And that's and that samsara, the endless cycle of birth and rebirth occurs because we have not achieved perfect love. And, and look, it all comes down to this at the end of the day. You know, I'm a PhD social scientist, but strip all the junk away and all the math that I've done. And this is all I got. This is all I've got. I mean, it's I'm, It's just one word. I feel like we should just end with that one word, given that we could hardly do better, uh, even though we could absolutely have a much more extensive conversation about all the ways that love and its motive force could be applied in multiple realms to much greater effect than is currently in evidence <laughs> in our local, national, and certainly global scene. But maybe we'll save that for a, a next chapter of our conversation. Thank you so much for having this with us today, Arthur. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for doing this program. I know you're lifting people up. I know you want to bring people together and I, I know you want a better world. And I, I appreciate that a lot because I'm part of this world. Absolutely. Thanks, Arthur. Wow. That was an intense illuminating and in many ways beautiful conversation that I didn't really expect to go quite in the directions that it went but I am 
delighted that it did. And it, it's a real reminder of how much more, at least I feel we should be having conversations that weave in and out of our inner lives and our outer worlds, right? And the, the degree to which those have become seemingly separate and, and non-communicating realms of human experience is, is one of the many fissures that rents our current world. I was also really struck by that emphasis on contemporary understandings of happiness as the absence of struggle or the absence of pain or the absence of challenge uh, is one of the most significant impediments to genuine happiness because the, the cost of trying to avoid conflict or avoid struggle is immense relative to whatever one can gain from it. And I think that we're missing that a lot in, in modern society. Since we're, we're on this uh, conversational track of weaving in our inner and outer lives, there's a, a really nice prayer. Uh, it's a Puritan prayer that this reminds me of. And if you will forgive me for reading a couple lines um, in the middle, it's called uh, The Valley of Vision. In the middle, the author says, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart. And it goes on from there. But um, so essentially the essence of what you're saying is that all of life is life and we forget that or ignore that at our peril. And look, I mean, you know, part of the point of the Progress Network was that a huge portion of our shared reality is filtered through platforms of media or communication and the contemporary version of them in particular uh, either privileges very hot emotions anger outrage fear or on the other hand euphoria excitement it doesn't privilege the complexity and the put one foot in front of the other and the work and all of those things uh, because that doesn't activate those either pleasure or pain centers with the same immediacy that is required to make these platforms function. And look, that was true with yellow journalism and pamphlets in the 18th century and newspapers in the 1890s. It's not like human beings were talking the way Arthur Brooks talked 150 years ago or the way Thoreau talked, right? It's, those were always exceptions to the rule. But there are lessons that we really, really need in a world where the sheer volume of noise and cacophony that moves toward, I want it now, and I want it easy, and I want it seamless, and that anything that are roadblocks and obstacles are seen as unequivocal absolute negatives that have to end or be removed. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I, and I will say, uh, as a I don't want to say a silver lining, but as, as a point of optimism, I, I suppose, against the sheer noise is that if you do present people with uh, the conversation, for instance, that we just had with Arthur or, you know, some of these things that you tend to find in the world's oldest wisdom traditions, people do stir, right? Like it stirs something in them. It's not like that doesn't work anymore, right? And there's something comforting there that this is what Arthur was saying is that we're kind of all the same at the end. Like we're all gonna react to those like deep, deep human traits and and conditions. And for sure, right. I mean, the tens of thousands of people have been listening to this podcast, or I guess hundreds of thousands by the time some of you are listening. 
uh, or the newsletter that we're doing or just the content that we're trying to propagate would suggest that obviously there are there are there is resonance and there is an audience and people do want to hear that it just is right now uh, more the exception than the rule and it would be it would be a totally different world admittedly and one that's not likely to happen in the, in the near or the midterm uh, if that was more the rule than the exception and it, it's a good thing that it has resonance. Arthur's book is on the bestseller list, so people, mm. people are clearly hungry and listening and reading and wanting. All true. And we are having these conversations, obviously, because we think that they are vital and important. It's still nonetheless the case that it is an uphill pursuit relative to the sheer weight of, of the culture and the volume of, of that noise. I do find it very heartening, though, the number of people that we've talked to and we'll keep, we'll keep talking to who are not of that particular sentiment, who have, who have found their own megaphones, who found their own ways to make their voices resonant in a constructive way in a complicated culture. Uh, I take the silver lining from that, you know, that we are literally able to have these conversations and propagate them to me is part of the, well, there's actually more going on here in the world than just an endless litany of chaos and conflict and drama, right? Arthur Brooks is very interesting insofar as his entire tone and messaging is the absence of drama. Uh, drama as in, oh my God, oh my God. Not drama <laughs> as in there are challenges and there are problems and there are stories. Uh, he's yeah. absolutely about that. Yeah, I was thinking as you were talking about um, what we're doing, sort of being movement uphill. And then what you followed up with after is that it might be uphill. Hopefully it's not Sisyphean. <laughs> um, and I guess we'll see. All right. Well, we will, we will, we will continue our non-Sisyphean task of uh, <laughs> pushing the boulder uphill inch by inch, day by day, until we get to the crest and look at how far we've come and what a wonderful world <laughs> it is after that task is complete. And we will keep having those conversations. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Zachary. <laughs>